just so proud of a man. Uh, Salmons, this is year zero. Today, I had the great pleasure of chatting with a friend of mine, Michael Harris, who is a defense attorney, a public defendant, actually, and a former student of Murray Rothbard. Michael Harris came on the show to talk about the boom-bust cycle and the history behind monetary policy. But first, RyanBunting.com. For all of your graphic design needs, go to RyanBunting.com. Ryan Bunting is some guy that does graphic design on the internet and gave me a logo so I would advertise for him. So go to RyanBunting.com for all of your graphic design needs because I love that fucking guy. He's a fucking amazing. Also, thank you, Tom Burton, for the music and... If you want to support the show and find autonomy in your life, check the affiliate links below for the Learn Autonomy course, 19 skills, critical thinking, you know the routine. That's your ticket. Okay, I am here with my buddy, the public defender, former Rothbard student, Michael Harris. How are you doing, man? Doing well, Tommy. Doing well. So we decided that it would be a good idea to do a primer on the boom-bust cycle after my primer on the Federal Reserve with Mr. Mike Meharry. And I was like, that's, yeah, that's, that's a really good idea because for a lot of the new listeners that aren't familiar with like extremely familiar with economics and don't really understand why there is a boom bust cycle or think it's a natural market phenomenon. Uh, I thought this was a, a brilliant idea, especially coming from uh, a Rothbardian student, someone who was, who was to, whose tutelage he was under Rothbard. So um, I'm going to kind of let you go and if I, if I find some places where I think there should be some questions answered to clear some things up for the layman, I'll, uh, I'll scribble them down and I'll ask questions as we go along. Well, first of all, let me start by saying don't feel bad if you don't know or understand about the Austrian Business School uh, theory of the business cycle, because to be quite blunt, there's a lot of people who were awarded the Nobel Prize for Economics that don't understand and uh, apparently don't know about the Austrian School of Economics theory of the business cycle. So uh, for whatever it's worth, you're in really good company in what I call the blue peeled world, which, uh, and basically the, the real main take home point is that the seeds of an economic bust get planted during the economic boom. So, the most important lesson I've learned is perception and reality are really two different things. And when we have an economic boom, really what that is, is it's excessive growth. 
economically that creates malinvestments and misprices. And the more and more that you have the boom and the accumulation of badly invested money and mispriced goods, then that creates an economic bust, which is necessary to correct the distortion of the boom. So that's why you go through these boom and bust cycles. This, this was recognized long, long ago. People really couldn't come up with a good explanation for it. It's all kinds of nutty ideas. Of course, the Marxists say it's a symptom of a capitalist greed and uh, you know that sort of thing, which you know, there is some truth to that. There's some people who try to say that, well, it's you know, astronomical cycles coming in in alignment, but then you point to them and like, well, wait a second, you know, this year, this time it was five years ago, this time it was eight years ago, this year it was 10 years ago. How can you explain that with planets and stars and stuff like that? And, oh, well, that's a cycle within a cycle within a cycle. And like, yeah, whatever, dude, whatever, you know, <laughs> it just doesn't add up. But uh, for whatever it's worth, Murray Rothbard said he had more respect for the people who bought into that theory than, than some of the other theories that were put out there. But there can be uh, many different causes of an economic boom. No one can really say when the bust is going to come. Now, I personally feel like we are here in the United States of America in on May 7th, 2021, we're in the midst of a business cycle boom that's going to lead to a bust. Exactly when it'll happen, that I cannot tell you. Nobody can tell you exactly when it's going to happen. Now, as, uh, as far as the causes of the boom-bust cycle, the single biggest cause throughout history has been uh, what's known as fractional reserve banking. Now, I know that's a technical term, and it comes from the idea that bankers have a natural tendency to lend out more money than they actually have. So just to pull out figures, if they got uh, $100,000 in actual currency sitting in their banks, they have a tendency to loan out more of that and collect interest than they actually have. Uh, the idea is, is that they want to keep just a fraction of their assets on at hand inside the bank to satisfy the local demand. Now, most of us today have no idea what, a, what was known as a run on the bank. That's when everybody in town basically runs to the bank to pull their money out at the same time. Uh, if you ever saw the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, they did a good example of a run on the bank, give you an idea of what that, that did happen on multiple occasions. And that's when everybody just all ran to the bank at the same time to pull their money out all at the same time. Now, the, the banks, the fractional reserve banking with banks loaning out more money than they actually have, then they get overextended. They fear there's going to be a run on the banks. So they pull back, they contract, and that would create a, a bust cycle as everybody, the bank does that. Now, your individual local bank, single bank, it expanding and contracting, that's really just kind of a local issue. I don't know how many banks are in your town, hometown, Tommy, but you know if, if the bank's we if there's one. only one bank in town and it's expanding, it's contracting, and it gets overexpanded, everybody runs to the bank at the same time, pulls all their money out, uh, that's definitely going to create a, 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 a bust in your town 
but it's not going to affect, say, like Beaumont, Port Arthur, Orange, so forth. Yeah, we have a we have one single credit union in our town. That's that's all that's there. Well, the problem is, is that with when you have several banks all expanding and contracting at the same time, the most common culprit for doing that is a central bank, as we know it, the Federal Reserve. So when you have like our Federal Reserve system, that basically makes all the banks throughout the country expand contract at the same time. So that definitely magnifies the boom bust cycle that's that you see. Now there can be other things that can lead to uh, banks contracting. Uh, too bad that Murray Rothbard didn't hear it live to see when uh, the mainstream media started calling banks too big to fail. He would have had a field day with that. I, I can see Murray Rothbard now. It was too big to fail. It means it's too damn big, you know. So, so uh, yeah, the whole uh, two banks that are labeled too big to fail, so the government's got to step in and bail them out. You have uh, artificially low interest rates from the Federal Reserve, which uh, kind of like what we're currently seeing now, zero interest rates from the United States Federal Reserve. I mean, think about it, Tommy. I mean, how many people are you going to lend money to at no interest rates? Huh? Uh, yeah. Maybe your wife, your mother, your father, your cousin. <laughs> you know, yeah, you know. people that I really can trust. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Now we have like a central bank that's that's uh, lending out money to uh, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley <laughs> at no interest rate. Uh, not not to mention Ukraine and uh, Saudi Arabia. Uh, and, and let's not forget China and Russia as well, not paying any interest on uh, money that we're lending them. Uh, but and also, that, I'm sorry, but that that also de-incentivizes savings whenever oh, the interest rates are low like that. Oh yeah, and that's uh, with my elderly mother before she died. That's what I was telling her. She had savings bonds that were basically paying her no interest whatsoever, and I'm like, Mom, you'd be better off to take that money and buy coffee. Like, oh, you know I mean, it's just uh, you're not gaining anything at all. By by, I don't even know if they hardly sell savings bonds anymore, but because uh, they don't, don't pay any interest at all. Yeah. But uh, also, just changes in the money supply that's uh, happened from time to time in our history. Now, as uh, uh, you know, we can talk more about that later. But I think it would be helpful to go into a little bit of a history of uh, where this comes from. And you know, I was a history major. That's where I met Murray Rothbard. As a, and I was a history major at University of Nevada, Las Vegas, in the nineties. Now, Murray Rothbard. Let me let me ask you a couple of questions because you 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 ran over a couple of things that some people may not be completely aware of, and might be like, well, he's just saying that, and he's just um, trying. He's just asserting that this is true, but I, I don't see any evidence. So I just want to I just want to clarify that you had brought up distorted markets and we have a lot of distorted markets most, most markets in the united states are distorted but the the propaganda around the united states is that it is a free market economy so can you give just a couple of examples of how the markets are distorted in the u.s well the, the one that jumps out at me that i think most people today americans today to realize the toilet paper okay i mean this time last year 
And I know that uh, from previous podcasts, a uh, big part of the deliveries you make is toilet paper. Yep. And I had heard you say that, you know, look, folks, we always had plenty of toilet paper. It's just they had to change how it was packaged and where it was delivered to. But this time last year, basically March and April of last year, Americans were going crazy because we were all running out of toilet paper. Because, uh, and so at the time, I mean, you tell me from what I've heard you say, we always had plenty of toilet paper. It's just that uh, they had to set it up where it would go to supermarkets and Walmarts instead of uh, corporate office suites to, you know, that sort of thing. Yeah, well, and a lot of what was happening with the with that, and th th that is a good example, and that goes into the supply chain, is what they were doing is they were diverting drivers uh, from, the, from the paper market into running medical supplies so they were they were pulling they were pulling existing drivers that were dedicated on certain routes or specific routes off of those specific routes sending them over to you know uh running medical supplies that they had never run before and they they weren't hiring new drivers in the process so or or not near as fast as they were uh, as they were diverting the the routes so what you had is you had people who were demanding more toilet paper because they were afraid they would get the shits with COVID and you had less people delivering the, the toilet paper. So what you were having to do instead of, instead of hitting the, uh, hitting their, the middleman, you would, uh, you were skipping the middleman. You were going straight to the Sam's club, straight to the Costco, straight to, you know, Walmart, whichever one. And instead of delivering to their distribution center, you were delivering directly to the stores. Yes, that that was that was definitely something that happened last year. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I think this is probably before your time. I'm old enough to remember the uh, the gasoline shortage of the early '70s, mid '70s. And uh, if people today are dumbfounded when I tell them that when I was a little kid, my parents would send me in a store with twenty-dollar bill pay for a tank of gas and a carton of cigarettes and a gallon of milk <laughs> you know and I, I can remember when i was a kid the uh there were gas pumps where the most you could buy was nine dollars 99 cents because they were simply not calculated to ring up ten dollars because at the time the price of gasoline was like 30 cents a gallon so it really was beyond their imagination that somebody would need more than ten dollars worth of gasoline I mean, today, most people can't even get half a tank of gasoline for, for $10. So that, that was a classic example in my lifetime of how the markets had been distorted. The true value of gasoline had been held down. And uh, that was shortly after the collapse of the Bretton Woods system, which if you want me to get into that later on down the line, I will. Yeah, we can do that. Let's, let's move on to this next question I had. I just wrote down a couple of, during that first section, but I don't want to you know, prolong the examples of distorted markets. I think people understand like what we're saying by distorted markets is um, it, when, when the government is sticking their hands in the market and they're manipulating where, where the resources are going, then it distorts the market. And so it's not the, it's not the demand that is, is running the supply. It's the government running the supply uh, in, in trying to create a demand for it. So, um, the, the, you had said that you think that we're in a boom right now, which I, I can see your, your logic in that, but some people may not understand 
with the lockdowns over the last year and how many businesses did shut down how do we how do we enter a boom in such a financially difficult time for so many different people you know people that are depending on government checks people that are are not able to go to work how, how does that equate to a boom the official key words are quantitative easing which is a very fancy way for the saying that the federal government based the federal reserve basically just created money out of thin air that we did not have people working producing things providing goods and services collecting paychecks and putting savings and parts of their money into 401k investments to funnel economic growth what we had was the central bank combination of the United States Treasury and the Federal Reserve is basically getting together and decided we're just going to create money out of thin air. I mean, uh, it's not the first time that's happened. Of course, now there's a, uh, a group that call themselves the modern monetary theorists, which I absolutely hate the term because there's absolutely nothing modern about it. It's a fact that's been around for a long time, many <laughs> times in history where they just basically just create money. They're creating the illusion that the economy's been okay. It's kind of like as long as the S&P 500 continues to go up in value, everybody thinks, well, it can't be too bad. Uh, now I can look over the past year and say, I can understand why Amazon stock went up. I can understand why Walmart stock went up. I can understand why Netflix went up. But like Starbucks got more valuable like what's that about okay they won't even let me sit down and drink a cup of coffee and download something off the internet yet yet uh yet their stock their value of their company has gone up uh you know that makes no sense to me at all and uh like i said and i heard this on the on, on the mainstream media show you how brilliant these people are uh one of the reporters saying the price of gasoline has been going up, yet people are driving less. Why is that? Uh, it's like, oh, dumb, dumb. It's because they devalued the currency. That's why. So, so yeah, I, I think that we have a uh, very much a, an economic boom that has been created. It's uh, it's a, like a little fantasy world that uh, we're just phony money. Right. It's like taking Monopoly money and just handing it out to kids and saying, okay, you can, you can just run a store and buy whatever you want to with this. Right. In reality, it's just, it's just fake money. Right. And this is why, this is why Mises always pointed out that the, the, the bust was the healthy part of the market because the boom is a distorted you know, market, you know, in, in most cases. I mean, do you... You think your listeners have a pretty good idea who Ludwig von Mises and Frederick Hayek were? Um, I'm sure. I'm sure most of them do, but I I, I did find uh, some of what you had what you had written and sent to me to be interesting. If you want to just scroll through that, well, I think it would be helpful to go into a little bit of it. And just, I'm a history geek, so I can't help myself. Okay, <laughs> you know, when I first heard Ludwig von Mises when I was uh, started studying with Murray Rothbard at UNLV, I figured, well, this must have been some like pompous Prussian aristocratic jerk. Much to my surprise, he, actually he was Jewish, that he grew up in a Jewish family in the eastern part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. 
And uh, apparently it was not uncommon for the Habsburg family that ran that empire to give uh, a title bond to people. And uh, apparently Ludwig von Mises, his father and his grandfather, you as a truck driver will appreciate this, they were really good at running a railroad. Uh, apparently they were good at being able to uh, pick up and deliver freight to various parts of the empire. And so the Habsburg gave them the title Bon, B-O-N, for that. And uh, he kept that title his entire life. Uh, he went to uh, school at the University of Vienna. And he, he considered himself a uh, very much a classical liberal in the tradition of John Locke, David Hume, uh, John Stuart Mill. Uh, at that time, you could not get a degree in economics, so actually he got a law degree, but his actual degree was in law. Uh, when World War I started, he became an artillery officer after the war. He uh, got a position in uh, the Austrian government as an economic advisor. And uh, while he was in that position, he had a front row secret going on in Germany and the German hyperinflation which we can talk about that later, but he was an eyewitness to it. And he was able to use his position in the Austrian government to keep, to have like a less extreme version to kind of pit it off before it got to the extremes like it did in Germany. Now, uh, Frederick Kayak, on the other hand, he was also Austrian as well. He was a trench, uh, he was a trench soldier during World War One. He came out of World War One really disillusioned. And uh, actually, he was, he was leaning towards socialism. And uh, he picked up a book written by Ludwig von Mises called Socialism, thinking that it was gonna be to teach him all the great and wonderful things about the, the new revolution that was coming and all that sort of thing. And what he found was a book that just basically said that uh, socialism can't work as an economic system. That uh, you know, there's no way to be able to determine how much of one good you have, how much of, without a market price, a market mechanism, it can't work. So as we would say today, Frederick Hayek got blue-pilled, uh, got red-pilled by the book Socialism, and he became Ludwig von Mises' student. And in Austria, he was Ludwig von Mises' main student. Now, when uh, the Nazis took over Austria, ironically, Hayek was in London not entirely certain how he wound up there but for obvious reasons he decided he better stay in london than go back to austria when the nazis took over when the nazis took over austria ludwig von mises was teaching economics in switzerland he did get a teaching post in switzerland and while he was at that teaching post in switzerland he put out a lot of uh reports and papers criticizing the Nazis and talking about how their economic system wouldn't work. Now, what we don't know, he decided to leave Switzerland, come to New York at the start of World War I, World War II. What we don't know was, uh, did he decide that on his own or was he strongly encouraged by the Swiss government to do that? That we don't know. But that's how he wound up in uh, New York and that's where he got, uh, where he taught my, my economics professor, Murray Rothwell. So that's the connection that I have to him. Apparently the guy was a, uh, he was your, your, your classic Vienna coffee shop type, uh, loved to sit around and talk and about various stuff. And uh, 
he, he influenced a lot of people. Unfortunately, he didn't live to see his predictions come true about the Soviet Union and you know, socialism being a complete failure of the economic system. But uh, he did, the two of them together, Hayek and Mises, did come up with the Austrian school business cycle theory that we've talked about. Now, it really didn't get much attention until the 70s came along. And that's when uh, John Maynard Keynes up to then and Keynesian economics totally dominated. But in the, in the 70s, you had a period of time where you had high inflation. And I, I can remember they called it double digit inflation during a re economic recession. And Keynesian economics is like, that can't happen. Like, but it did happen. And so Keynesianism could not explain how you could have double digit inflation during a recession. So people started looking around for another explanation. And that's when they started paying attention to the Austrian economic business cycle theory. Now, unfortunately, by that time, Ludwig von Mises had died. He was like 92 or 93 years old by then. So, uh, when they were handing out the Nobel Prizes for economics in 1974, Ludwig von, according to Murray Rothbard, they couldn't give it to Ludwig von Mises because he had died. So they gave it to Frederick Hayek. Uh, you know. But they worked on it together. We don't know exactly how much was, you know, which, which one came up with which part, the two of them worked on it together. But Hayek was the one that actually got awarded the Nobel Prize for it. Well, it's really interesting because of the amount of people that still to this day subscribe to Keynesianism. Oh, yeah. It's uh, the, the hold that Keynesian economics has among politicians. Because it's perfect for politicians. It tells them exactly what they wanted to hear. And uh, that was John Maynard Keynes' true talent was he, he, he was absolute master of telling politicians what they wanted to hear. So uh, John Maynard Keynes pretty much saw business people like Dallas Cowboy owner Jerry Jones, brilliant but highly impulsive. And he saw consumers as basically like sports fans. They're just wildly irrational and wildly impulsive and had got pissed enough to get in out of the rain. So according to John Maynard Keynes, it was the duty of uh, politicians and bureaucrats to be rational and intelligent and uh, tell people how they're supposed to spend their money. Which makes perfect sense for politicians. <laughs> so yeah, they, they to this day they they love Keynesian economics. Right. So you had mentioned um, the, in, the inflation in Germany. Um, can we can we get into that a little bit and the parallels of what we're seeing today that that could create um, a hyperinflation uh, in in the U.S. Yes, and. Uh, phrase you need to be on the lookout for is crack up boom. Ludwig von Mises apparently invented the phrase crack up boom. And keep in mind, he was in Austria. Germany was nearby. So he, he kind of like saw what was going on with his neighbors. Now, after World War One, Germany, they had a huge debt to pay off because of the war. And they were imposed, they were supposed to pay reparations to France and Belgium for the damage caused by the war. And they did not have like 
gold mines and oil fields and that sort of thing in Germany. So somebody had the brilliant idea that we're just literally just going to create money. We're just going to start just printing up money. And uh, I, I, it, it's hard to know exactly how much was real history and how much was urban legend, but I can see, I have actually seen copies of the, of the currency they created. They created so much currency that it didn't even, they only printed it on one side so they can save any. That, that's give you just a rough idea uh, of how much money they actually printed. And I've seen, I've seen the actual currency bills where they, they're only printed on one side. And uh, uh, the value of the, the German currency at the time was called the mark. It basically, uh, so, so the, at, the, at the end of World War I, basically one German mark was roughly worth, uh, one, one US dollar was roughly worth four German marks. About four years later, one US dollar was worth four million marks. Yeah, so they just devalued the currency. It's, uh, and, and prices, we have a lot of stories of, you would sit down for a meal, you know, like right now you're, you're eating uh, Wendy's burger and fries. You know, you probably paid about uh, 10 bucks for the burger fries and a drink from Wendy. Try to imagine that uh, on the return trip home, you stop at that exact same Wendy's, you get the exact same meal, except you see it costs $15. And then you come back next week and the exact same meal at the exact same Wendy's costs $25. And then you come back a month from now, that exact same meal costs $100. That sort of thing happened. And uh, we have a lot of stories about people literally carrying wheelbarrows of cash around. They would take a wheelbarrow of cash to a, to a baker to buy a loaf of bread. And uh, the more and more they just devalued the currency, the more and more prices just kept going up and up and up. And a, a lot of people just like totally lost their savings. There were people that were elderly and had their pensions that they thought would uh, provide them for the rest of their lives. Suddenly they had no money whatsoever. Uh, there was one famous case of a guy, he was like a writer pundit in Berlin that had retired. And he basically, when he retired, he mouth of his life savings was basically just enough to pay for a trolley ride around Berlin. So he took a trolley ride around Berlin and went home, stuck a fit in the oven and killed himself. Uh, so yeah, that, that, that actually, we do know that happened. We have stories about uh, uh, families sending their boys down to buy firewood, wheelbarrows uh, full of cash and the people with firewood refused to sell it to them. That the firewood was more valuable than the cash. Right. And so the families, what they do, they burn the current, they just burn the cash to keep warm mm -hmm. uh, because it had become, the, the money had been so inflated that it literally became worthless except as paper. And uh, people would uh, use, use it as a joke. They would make wallpaper out of currency because it was more valuable as wallpaper. It was more valuable as, uh, to burn and keep warm. So yeah, literally firewood was more valuable than uh, than money. And it got to the point where people just stopped using the mark at all. They just reverted back to a total barter economy where they traded goods with each other and didn't even bother to use cash. Now, uh, the reason why the German 
example, and there had been others, Brazil, uh, more recently Zimbabwe, it happened. But the thing about the German hyperinflation that would become so crucial as at the time, the Nazis were just an obscure uh, political party in Bavaria at, uh, had a real energetic speaker, but nobody really paid much attention to them. However, during the hyperinflation, they still had, Germany still owed all this money in war reparations to France and Belgium. Well, they were kind of dragging their feet about because they didn't want to turn over stuff because stuff was so valuable, more money, and, and the German and the French and the Belgians wouldn't take the German money to pay the war reparations. So, so the French and the Belgians, they decided they were going to occupy the industrial heartland of Germany. And uh, they decided that they were going to use troops from their African colonies to do it. And so there was a lot of Germans who took uh, real offense to the sight of uh, dark-skinned Africans occupying their heartland. And uh, so that led people to start paying more attention to this obscure political party in Bavaria. And that, that I, I believe, and a lot of other historians believe that led to the rise of Adolf Hitler and the Nazis. Right. So much of the focus of my podcast is to point out abuses of power and how bad things have gotten and the direction in which we're heading as a society. And it can be a real black pill. I've partnered up with Richard Grove to offer my listeners an opportunity to sign up to his autonomy course. Uh, the autonomy course is designed for people looking for solutions, people that want to shape their own future, people that are not willing to be at the behest of large corporations or the United States government or the banking system. The autonomy course is designed for those of you who wish to have complete control of the reins of your life, who are looking to be successful, that to thrive and not just survive, to provide for your family by utilizing your existing skills and learning how to market and sell those skills in order to be your own boss or learn new skills in order to leverage that into a new career opportunity. So if there's a job out there you've been trying to get or you've been wishing you could get, but you just don't have the skills for it, the autonomy course is the place for you to start, to learn how to land that position, to learn how to market yourself better, to gain confidence, and to be surrounded by a community of like-minded people that will encourage you and help you along the way. So. Use my affiliate links and go check out the autonomy course. It could be right for you. And okay, so when you look at the amount of money that's been created here in the U.S. over the last year, um, I, I was I read an article the other day. It said it was something like nineteen trillion dollars. If you if you take into account all the all the money that's being created and just given to banks without you know, being involved in any of these bailouts that the government keeps uh, signing. So if, if you take into consideration how much money was created last year, they say it's near somewhere between 33 and 
uh, the uh, currency in circulation was created last year. How how is the United States uh, avoiding hyperinflation? Because I mean, I know there are a lot of companies that are saying that we're looking at like five percent inflation in September. That that's what they're that's what they're guessing. They're guessing that their products are going to be going up by five percent by uh, in September. But how is it not twenty percent? How is it not thirty percent? How how are they able to manipulate the market to such a degree to to keep the inflation from running rampant at this point in time? Well, Tommy, people always criticize lawyers for not giving straight answers. So I'm going to give you a straight answer. <laughs> I haven't got a clue. <laughs> I cannot tell you why prices have not gone up. I can tell you one thing is, is that the Federal Reserve officially does not measure food and gasoline prices, which I guess that's great for everybody who drives an electric car and grows their own food. Uh, <laughs> I can tell you that uh, my grocery bill basically has doubled, right. uh, and I'm not buying any different food. Right. But my, my grocery bill has practically doubled the past 14 months. So now, I think we're definitely seeing it with food. And yeah. now, also they're talking about, of all things, chlorine. Apparently, for uh, I, I'm hearing now that we're having a shortage of chlorine for uh, swimming pools. That uh, I think we're going to have more and more distortions like that where people that are making goods are going to hold on to it now historically the the one to watch is gold and silver two commodities most that you need to watch out for but also i can tell you that now i'm not a financial analyst or advisor so i can't tell you how you should invest your money and so forth but i can tell you how i've invested my money mm -hmm. uh, i've invested uh chunks of my retirement in silver and copper and I've been very surprised that uh, gold. So I'm surprised gold hasn't gone up more than it has. There's some signs now that the, that the value of gold is going up now. Mm -hmm. uh, I do have some contacts. They 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 tell me that current demand, current supply. They're predicting by December the value of gold is going to be four thousand dollars an ounce. I, it just now topped over eighteen hundred dollars an ounce, so I, I I think it's definitely coming. The question is when. Now, yeah. Of course, that hasn't shown up yet. Uh, first of all, the people that the Federal Reserve has given the money to, they they don't not exactly uh, got a great incentive to go advertise the fact that they have all this freshly printed money and what they're doing with it. So the people that get the money first, they they reap the big rewards. Right. So the political cronies that get the money first, uh, they can they can run and invest it before the uh, everybody else catches on to it. So I do believe that's going on. And uh, now the thing I think that's unique about this one is is that the rest of the world is showing that it's catching on too. And I think that the, the world as a whole has been following the United States uh, lead on economic issues since the Bretton Woods Conference in June 1944, which if you want me to talk about that, I will. But I, I think the rest of the world is basically deciding, already deciding that, you know what, 
the almighty U.S. dollar is not is not the the be all of everything now as we devalue the currency. So our imports have not it's not shown up yet in imports, but I think that day is coming. Okay, so I wanted to I want to run this by you because I think this might at least in in part help explain some of the not having inflation, but I'm not certain that it explains the in, entire situation that we're dealing with. It's really hard to follow exactly what the Federal Reserve is doing and how the, the dollar is being manipulated um, because they've gotten so good at doing it. Um, they have plenty of practice. So one of the theories I've heard that that is, is helping keep inflation down is the the fact that the U.S. dollar is the world reserve currency and there's so much um, so many dollars parked overseas. Now, is there an Austrian theory that would explain why that would be so? Well, it's a basic law of physics. A body in motion tends to stay in motion. A body at rest tends to stay at rest. So the fact that they've been just using the U.S. dollar for so long since June 1944 as the world's reserve currency, uh, it's just people gotten used to using it. Uh, plus the fact that uh, the other reserve currencies uh, from the other nations it's kind of like the cleanest, dirty shirt syndrome. Uh, you know, yeah, the U.S. Uh, Federal Reserve has mismanaged uh, the U.S. dollar, but, you know, the other countries have done an even worse job. So, yeah, there is kind of a uh, cleanest, dirty shirt syndrome going on there. Okay. And uh, plus, it's a thing that uh, for a long time, uh, the, China, the Chinese yuan, is the next closest rival in the last 20 years and most of the world hasn't quite been ready to kind of fall along with china mm -hmm. uh, i predict more and more people are going to start yeah so, yeah china has openly said they want to replace the uh the u.s dollar as the uh the world's reserve currency they've said and they are on track to replace the u.s dollar uh by 2027 last i heard but and I, I can I can definitely tell you as a lawyer I've, I know this that they they openly say they want to be the world's leader in artificial intelligence by 2025. Mm -hmm. They have very openly said that. Right. And so that impacts my law, which someday you need to have me come on and talk about predictive policing, but that's a topic for another podcast. I we had talked we had talked about that a couple of years ago about about possibly doing a podcast on it and you said you needed to do some more research on it so it's good yeah to hear that. that's my I, I need to kind of like it's it's one of the i keep saying one of these days i'm going to learn more about it but <laughs> not one of these days yet <laughs> i feel you but okay so my other theory about about how they've been able to keep inflation down and it goes right along with uh you know a body in motion tends to stay in motion is they have moved the United States away from um, a, a production production state into a consumerist state. So the majority of, of, of the people are spending much more money than they're earning. So it never, the market never settles to a degree 
to where the inflation can catch up with the amount of money that's out in circulation. Would that make any sense? Uh, yeah, basically, we've done a great job of exporting our debt. That, that has been America's true great export is uh, weapons and debt. <laughs> so, <laughs> the, uh, you know, the rest of the world has been perfectly okay with buying U.S. debt for several generations. And uh, to me, it's, it, it's, it's like we keep the movie Matrix where they uh, offered uh, Keanu Reeves the red pill or the blue pill. Mm-hmm. It's like Americans just keep taking the blue pill and pretending it's still June 1944. I mean, it's just we just don't want to face reality. Okay. All right. Well, yeah. Get get into get into Brenton Woods. Um, a lot of I I know I'm not near as familiar on everything that took place at at that conference that I probably should be. I know the basics, but I don't. I'm not near as familiar as I should be. So let's let's get into that. I want to I want to offer up a little bit on that and then i want to tie all this together here and and explain what how us talking about hyperinflation us talking about germany the history of bretton woods all this how it all creates how it all ties into the boom and bust cycle okay uh yeah the bretton woods was the name of a hotel in New England. It's either Vermont or New Hampshire. I can't tell you the exact one. But uh, I think it was Mary Rothwell would love to talk about the Bretton Woods Conference. Uh, so basically, World War II, after the success of the Normandy D-Day landings in early June 1944, it was pretty clear the United States was, the war was going the United States way. And that was clear to everybody after the D-Day landings, early June, 1944. The Roosevelt administration, Franklin Roosevelt, proposed a big conference with the allies and various other friendly nations to discuss economic issues related to fighting the war. And it was going to be at the Bretton Woods Hotel Resort in New England. And so all the various allied countries and several, and basically after the success of the D-Day landings, there were a lot of small nations who just were ready to fall in line to to curry favoritism with the United States of America. Because they saw the United States, the war was going U.S. way. So they wanted to kind of like get in early on on our side. So they all all met at this uh, hotel and you can go on Wikipedia and look it up. Now, when Murray Rothbard first started talking about the Bretton Woods Conference, they dismissed him as this crackpot conspiracy nut case. But uh, you can go on Wikipedia and see it for yourself that before the war, the, US, the, the German pound sterling had been the world's reserve currency. Most international transactions took place in the U.S. and the, the British pound sterling. At the Bretton Woods Conference, it was decided that international transactions would take place in the the United States dollar. Now, the Roosevelt administration made it clear that they did not want to create an empire where they controlled territory like the British Empire, the French Empire. Basically, what they wanted was they wanted to be the world's reserve currency. So the United States dollar became the world reserve currency and handling all transactions. 
and it was specifically stated, hard to believe today, but the, the U.S. dollar was valued at $23 an ounce, and it was pegged at $23 an ounce. And the agreement was is that on the international market, other central banks could trade in their U.S. dollars, $23 U.S. dollars for a single ounce of gold. Well, that was set up in 1944, and it uh, it worked for a while until about the 1960s. That was the point where Lyndon Bain Johnson was president. He was trying to have his great society, war on poverty, uh, put men on the moon, and fight a Vietnam War, and maintain a massive mil overseas military bases in Korea and Germany as well. And so basically, the French in particular looked at Lyndon Johnson and said, you know what, we left Vietnam, <laughs> so we know how much money it costs to, uh, it cost us to run the Vietnam War, so uh, you're lying like a Persian rug, we want, uh, we're, we're going to give you $23, we want ounces of gold. Uh, the Johnson administration kind of like dragged their feet, kind of punted the ball to the Nixon administration about that. The French kept insisting that uh, they all these U.S. dollars that they were holding their bank, they wanted uh, an ounce of gold for every $23. And it finally got to the point where just Nixon just literally is like, no, not going to give it to you. So he formally took the United States out of the formal Bretton Woods Agreement off the last vestiges of the gold standard in October 1971. Now, if you look at tracks of the, 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 the rate of inflation, you can you can definitely see before and after uh, October 1971 when inflation just took off like crazy after Nixon cut the final ties of, of, the, of the gold standard. Now, Richard Nixon had a Secretary of State named Henry Kissinger who was smart enough to realize that, you know what, we gotta have something to replace gold to make people continue using U.S. dollars as a reserve currency. Because basically, a country having reserve currency is kind of like a 1950 game show where uh, the winner gets a brand new Cadillac, the people who come in second and third place get complimentary gifts from the, the show sponsors. <laughs> so, Kissinger was smart enough to realize that he had to have something to force people to continue using U.S. dollars. So he went to OPEC, the oil petroleum exporting uh, countries, and told them, we will not oppose, the United States will not oppose the formation of OPEC if you set it up so that all transactions in petroleum are done in US dollars, which in reality took us from a gold standard to a petroleum standard. Right. Very smart of Henry Kissinger to do that. Yeah, and that's, so, where, that's where the term petrodollar comes from, if anybody's yeah interested so basically and to this day there it, there are some signs now that the petrodollar is starting to break up right now it's uh china most most people don't know this but most of the oil that comes from the persian gulf is bought by china and china is is starting is starting to uh and also iran is secretly selling oil to china as well and so uh, they're trying to get, there is a, uh, a setup I'm told between China, Russia and Iran, they're starting to get together 
to try to conduct buying and selling of petroleum with uh, Chinese yuan and gold. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I think the days of the petrol dollar are numbered. It's, it's widely rumored that the real reason why the Obama administration killed uh, Muammar Gaddafi in Libya is because he tried to sell oil in something besides U.S. dollars. Yeah, he uh, he was actually, it was um, <clears throat> it was a, a currency that was backed by gold. Yeah. Yes, that that is uh, a fact that he did do that um, shortly before he was uh, the CIA went and had him assassinated. Um, the, uh, so. the president's private army <laughs> right <laughs> yeah the, the great nobel prize winning uh you know barack obama but that's uh <laughs> a story for another podcast right yeah no doubt but okay so when when you're when you're looking at through history and you're looking at hyperinflation when you're looking at Bretton woods and we're tying it back to the story of the boom bust cycle how does it all relate well being basically changes in the money supply these two malinvestments distorted prices and so the more and more it goes on it's kind of like the easiest way i could describe it as a public defender it's like fiscal it's like fiscal heroin so basically, you know, you get that first shot of heroin, you go off into little la-la land, you've got no problems till the heroin wears off. Then when the heroin wears off, it's kind of like, oh, I feel, I feel terrible. I got to have more heroin. So you put more into your system. And the longer you keep going through that boom and bust cycle of, uh, you know, getting, uh, going out on heroin, the harder it comes to get off of it. Well, I can tell you that in my uh, 20 years of experience of uh, doing drug cases, it's kind of like it's, it's, it's kind of like a trap that you get into that the more you do it, you get the benefits up front and they're apparent. You see the benefits immediately from free money from the right. government. So they give you a check uh, right now. The Biden administration is bragging about the fact that they're just giving people $1,400. So you get this check in the mail for $1,400 and you get the benefits immediately. You think this is great. I can go you know, run, do this, do that with my $1,400, pay my rent, pay car payments, so forth, so forth. This is great. It didn't cost me anything. Right? The cost is hidden. Basically, you don't know where that money is coming from. And I know from your podcast, you have children, you have grandchildren. Yep. Guess what? They're inheriting the debt that comes from all this uh, this free money that you're getting. That money's basically, will they ever pay it off? I, they're not even talking that they're going, we're going to pay this debt off anymore. So as I see it, the well, alternative they can have, they're either going to have to totally cut back military Radically increase taxes, which I don't see any politician in America doing that. Are they going to have to uh, devalue the currency? Are they just going to have to flat uh, just say we're not going to pay the debt off? Which uh, I would not. Uh, I, I think of those alternatives. The one that I think is going to happen is they're just going to devalue the currency. I think they're going to. Uh, I think what's going to end up happening is they're going to 
they're going to collapse the currency, uh, very similar as to uh, how the Soviet Union uh, currency collapsed. And um, they're going to um, move everything over to a digital currency that is not subject to the debts of, of the current currency. That's what I think they're going to try to do. I don't know how it's going to work, but I, I, I think that's the direction they're moving is trying to go into the, the arena of a digital dollar and that by collapsing the current monetary system, um, when they introduce that digital dollar as the savior for all the citizens of the United States, it's going to leave um, a lot of countries very angry and holding the bag for a lot of debt that the U.S. will never pay. I definitely think that they're going to screw the uh, the foreign uh, the foreign debt holders. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, yeah, and, and, and that could be the 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 door that that could be the final the straw that breaks the camel's back on a, a possibility of an of a actual hot world war. Well, I, I think that uh, things are setting up between the United States and China that uh, definitely are concerning that uh, China sees itself as the rising power. They see the United States as the declining power. And uh, they've always looked at Taiwan as this breakaway province that they would someday reunite with. And uh, I I have heard reports that China is willing to go to war over Taiwan. Now, uh, I don't know if they ever will or not. Uh, That remains to be seen. But I, I definitely feel like that uh, the, pe- the, fo- the foreigners who hold U.S. debts, they're going to be held high and dry. And I think they're smart enough to see it coming. Yeah. So I think it's only a question. I'm, t- I'm told that uh, foreigners aren't even buying U.S. Treasury bonds anymore. I'm told the only, the only group that is buying U.S. Treasury bonds is the Federal Reserve. Now, because they are so secretive, we really don't know what they do. Right. But uh, I've heard reports that basically they just print up money. They create they create already creating just digital dollars and using it to buy U.S. Treasury bonds just to maintain the illusion that the bond market is still solid. Mm -hmm. But uh, I just can't see it lasting. Yeah, no, I I don't. I don't. I don't foresee it lasting. Now, when when Rothbard was 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 teaching this. what did he did he give like you any advice or 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 teach the the students any way that they could hedge their own financial security against what was happening well yes he did uh he he predicted and he showed examples in other countries where people basically reverted to a barter system where you trade goods and services for goods and services and he would talk about, you know, during World War II, how uh, prisoners would trade coffee and uh, chocolate bars, <laughs> cigarettes, that sort of thing. How so, so wait, to- wait, wait. What you're saying is Rothbard admitted that Samuel Edward Conkin was right. That's what you're telling me. Well, I don't know about Samuel Edward Conkin, so he's new to me. But <laughs> you have to educate me about him. They they had a they had the great debate uh, between um, anarcho capitalism and agorism, and Conkin was would always tell Rothbard that agorism 
was the only was the 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 logical conclusion of anarcho-capitalism and it was the only way to put anarcho-capitalism into action that anarcho-capitalism otherwise was just a socio-economic theory that would never come to fruition and that if you wanted to bring it about you had to uh, engage in the counter-economic market the black and gray markets and so it sounds to me like what Murray Rothbard was saying was Konkin was actually right even though he never would admit it to Konkin well, and he pointed out multiple examples of where black markets flourished in the, in the face of uh, government crackdowns. He talked about uh, uh, prisoners trading favors for cigarettes and that sort of thing, and uh, World War II prisoners having uh, coffee when the Germans didn't have coffee, so they traded extra uh, coffee for food. Mm -hmm. And there's been many different commodities that were used as a store of wealth to uh, for a transaction, yeah. but uh, you know, the, the classic one is the gold. I mean, it's uh, because it's durable, it lasts, uh, you know, it can sit down on the bottom of the ocean in a shipwreck for 300 years, you can pull it up and it's still valuable. You know, these uh, little yeah. pieces of paper with George Washington's picture on them, they, uh, they would last about five minutes underwater. Yeah. So, uh, but, you know, there's been uh, several, uh, the ancient Romans used salt as a medium of exchange, which in back in the days before we had refrigeration, salt was very valuable mm -hmm. to preserve food. Yeah. I mean, Polynesians used sharks' teeth. Uh, Native Americans used horses and eagle feathers. I mean, it's just any any number of things that can be used. Mm -hmm. The main thing was is the Keynesian economists they saw money as a creation of government that they bestowed on people. Right. So they, you know, you had to have uh, the government to have your money, whereas Mises, Hayek, and Rothbard, they saw money as a creation of the market. Right. That the market created the money. Yeah. Now, yes, uh, governments can be in the business of coining money, and there is a U.S. mint that makes gold and silver coins. Mm -hmm. I have U.S. gold and silver one-ounce coins in my collection mm -hmm. that were made by the U.S. government. Uh, interesting side note you might want to check into is the state of Utah has legally said that people can use gold and silver to pay debts. And it is, it is in the Constitution that states may uh, use gold and silver to pay debts. And I think it's a great idea. I don't know why Texans haven't jumped on that. But my prediction is, is that uh, more and more states will follow Utah's example and say its citizens can use gold and silver coins to pay debts. What do you think? What do you think uh, Murray Rothbard would think about cryptocurrency? I think he would think is there's uh, interesting possibilities. I don't think he would see it as a true currency. Uh, because it is so dependent on electricity, because basically at the end of the day, it's just ones and zeros, uh, you know, on cloud computing, and it's dependent on electricity. So basically, if the electricity goes out, your cryptocurrency is basically worthless, which right. uh, many Texans found that out uh, during the Snowmageddon back in back in early February of this year. So uh, uh, I, I, I think he would definitely say there's some, see there's a value in uh, the blockchain data that can't be tampered with. 
I don't think he would see it as a true substitute for uh, gold and silver as an inflation hedge and ultimate uh, transaction. Because even if you're in a part of the world where bullets are flying over your head, you can pull out these shiny pieces of metal and say, hey, give me, uh, you know, if you give me your gun, I'll give you this uh, this shiny gold coin, one ounce coin for your for your gun with the ammunition. You like liable to find somebody that will take you up on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so with current with cryptocurrency, you go around and say, "Hey, I've got this flash drive with this blockchain data on it. Uh, will you give me your gun for my flash drive?" I think you're going to be hard pressed to find somebody to take you up on that. Yeah, I can see that. So. So you you ultimately you you think the the physical elements are actually uh, more valuable than than the crypto, which I can well, see in that history, in history, yes. Yeah, no, I mean, I, and I can see why. Like you said, the electricity aspect of it. I'm just curious, like what he would think. Jeffrey Tucker has this interesting argument, and we're kind of veering off the path, but we'll come back around. Uh, Jeffrey Tucker had had laid out this interesting argument that. A lot of Misesians say that crypto isn't isn't money and can't be considered money because, like fiat currency, it's not backed by anything. But J- Jeffrey Tucker laid it out that, well, actually, it is backed by something. It's backed by the technology that it's linked to. You can't have blockchain without Bitcoin. You can't have Bitcoin without blockchain. And so the utility of the blockchain is what backs the, the Bitcoin. So Bitcoin in itself has no value but because it is linked to the blockchain and it is inseparable from the blockchain. That's what ultimately determines how valuable it is. And with everything going in such a, that technological direction so quickly, I didn't know if with an argument like that, how Rothbard would might process that argument and think about that argument. I would predict that, uh, of course, Murray was not around when we came up with blockchain data, okay? So I'm right. only speculating. Uh, I think he would definitely say that, you know, look, there's probably an advantage over just pure fiat money that they just can't create blockchain data out of thin air and mm-hmm. hand it out. Right. So there's far fewer uh, nodes of blockchain Bitcoin being created than uh, US fiat dollars being created. And there's obviously people want to accept it for goods and services but i think he would probably well he would be very impressed with the argument that uh you can do more transactions per second over the internet with blockchain data than you can actually moving physical gold from one part of the planet to the other so yes speed uh i can i can tell you that at one point there was a guy that uh he proposed what I thought was a damn good idea. He would create a uh, a, a cryptocurrency based on a gram of gold, this peg to a, a gram of gold. And he created these cards, like a credit card size, uh, that had a gram of gold embedded inside the credit card. And so it's like you could either use it as blockchain data or you could use it as a gram of gold. Hmm. Uh, I thought it was a damn good idea. Unfortunately, the guy turned it into like a multi-level marketing scheme. And, and messed it up yeah. but I, I still think that's a damn good idea myself yeah and I, well, I know that and I haven't looked into it so I'm not going to say any, that I know anything about it but they do have like 
Bitcoin gold and, and things like that. So I think there are attempts to to back some of these these uh, cryptos with with gold. Um, I know that there's um, some sites where you can actually like uphold.com where you can actually buy crypto. Um, you could buy other currencies like uh, foreign currencies. You can buy precious metals and you, and it keeps the value of it on a credit card. You can swipe your credit card and use your gold to pay with, use your silver, use your crypto, whatever you want to use. So, I mean, take that for what it's worth. I'm just curious. I was just thinking when we're talking about, you were talking about, we're talking about hedging inflation. We're trying to, you know, come up with a solution that people can utilize, whether it's bartering, agorism, hedging inflation, whatever you, what, however you have to do it. And I was just curious if he, if he thought uh, Rothbard would, would look at, at crypto as a, a possible hedge, you know, um, the, the youth is, is much more keen on cryptocurrency than they are on the old gold and silver technology. So, um, and a lot of that is because the ease of use, you know, everything, everything's become so digital and, uh, carrying everything on your phone. You just scan your, uh, QR code and you buy stuff and, you know, whether it's your, with your Apple pay or whatever. So I was just curious, uh, what, how you, how you viewed that, uh, possibility. Well, the value of everything is purely subjective. Okay. Right. So, I mean, so, uh, you know, the example I would use is, you know, your dog Boogie, if you were to offer him, hey, I'll either give you an ounce of gold or a rib bone. My guess is he would jump on that rib bone in a heartbeat. Okay. <laughs> so, but uh, you, you can sit here and talk to him about, you know, the current value of this ounce of gold is uh, somewhere over $1,800 for an ounce. And, you know, you can get rib bones at the, uh, you know, local barbecue place. You can get, you know, slab of ribs for uh, $20. So, really, this ounce of gold is really more valuable. But my guess is Biggie would, like, give me that damn rib bone. Huh? <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, value is. I don't know, he, he, he might eat that gold, too. He did, like, uh, the last time. He's been good this week. But the last time I left him home with the wife for a week, he ate about $1,100 worth of uh, electronics. So, Ooh. I don't I don't think he'd be he'd shy away from eating that gold eventually. <laughs> I I will say this though. I think the COVID-19 craziness that we've seen this past year, I think that is accelerating uh what were already long-term trends that were in place and I can I can tell you as a lawyer that uh, most of local government is financed uh, largely through sales tax mm -hmm. in the state of Texas. Well, you know, we have not had near as much buying and selling going on with uh, COVID-19 lockdowns. And uh, you tell me, you drive around Texas a lot more than I do, but I see an awful lot of businesses that have closed down, an awful lot of restaurants that have closed down. Uh, well, I don't know where that is coming from. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't know, I don't, I don't spend a lot of time off of the highways in, in uh, Texas. Um, there's, but I, I will tell you it, Dallas in the Fort Worth area from everything I've seen, they, uh, there are some, well, I think Fort Worth was hit maybe a little harder than Dallas was. Um, but because I, I see more closed restaurants in Fort Worth 
than I do in Dallas. Um, but I, I, like I said, I don't get off of the highways very often in that area. Uh, haven't seen a whole lot in Houston that I find alerting or alarming. Everything seems to be operating per as usual in Houston. But I will tell you, some of these small towns have felt it. Um, I, I, I went, I stayed in a, I stayed in a town in Mississippi, um, probably population three or 4,000. And there was the only thing open in the entire town was the Dollar General. Uh, they didn't, every other store was boarded up, closed down. So um, there, I know people are feeling it. Well, I'm hearing stories about particular Southern California and New York that uh, just people are just virtually fleeing those regions. Yeah. And, and I, I don't think it's any coincidence that those were the most locked down of the regions. And uh, I'm, I, mean, I, I don't know if you have you driven around Austin lately? Because I've heard stories like everything is going crazy as far as buying houses in the Austin area. I haven't, but I'll tell you, but I, I, but I mean, I do have a, an anecdotal story. My parents, um, live in, live north, uh, north, north of Houston, um, near, near Conroe. And, um, they, the house next door to them went up for sale. Three days later, it was, it was sold sight unseen. Nobody had bought it. And the people that had bought it, bought it. They spent about $70,000 more than my parents spent on their house. And my parents' house is a lot nicer and about 10 years newer than the one that was sold next door to them. So houses are flying off the market. And that's another market like that's distorted as fuck. I mean, um, you know, Clint from Liberty Lockdown break, broke it down what he thinks he's going to see. And he's a mortgage broker or a retired mortgage broker. And he was, he's saying that once these moratoriums come up and all of this rent and mortgages, new, it's going to be horrible. I mean, it's just going to be terrible. And, and, you know, that's just another distortion in the market that's creating, you know, this false sense of security among the citizens because the government's like, well, you can't, you can't evict people. You can't evict people. They can't go to work, blah, blah, blah. But as soon as they lift that moratorium, I mean, a lot of these landlords aren't going to be help, be able to help but evicts people because they have to be able to, they have to be able to take care of the homes and the, and their uh, rental properties as well. And you know, they, they haven't, they haven't been making any money. You know? Property taxes too, don't forget. It's kind of like, Hey, how can we pay you property taxes on this apartment complex when you've been telling people they right. didn't have to pay us rent. Right. And I, th I think that lumber, I'm told that the value of lumber is going up dramatically. I mean, I predict we're going it's to out of this world. These shortages of lumber first, and uh, it's already happening. My dad works for a lumber company. Uh, he works for uh, a, a building supply company, and um, yeah, it's already happening. It's uh, he says they they're experiencing shortages on, on everything related to building materials. Um, I I built a chicken coop earlier this, uh, you know, uh, at the end of the at the end of the winter, and I spent probably. Seven hundred and fifty dollars on on building a coop that probably last year would have cost me three hundred bucks. Um, the the price of half inch 
um, OSB plywood is up from $7.50 a sheet um, to $50 a sheet. I mean, it's it's incredible. My dad was telling me he bought four sheets of one and an eighth inch OSB tongue and groove uh, a couple of weeks ago for $82 per sheet. The next week, the price was up to $90 per sheet and you couldn't find the, the product anywhere. I know my father was a carpenter, ran construction jobs in uh, around Tyler in the 70s. And he talked about they would come out and say that there was shortages of sheetrock. And so they, until uh, the price of sheetrock went up, then when the price of sheetrock come up, they got the shipments and he said it was, it was obvious that the sheetrock had just been sitting in a warehouse for six months. But it just they had to pass the cost of the inflation up right and now uh, murray rothbard used to talk about uh inflation would get so bad that workers would demand time off so they could go out and buy something with the money so it's like if you worked to, today friday you had to get time off you had to get paid every single day and given time off to go out like buy bread buy yeah. sausage buy something and so workers, a lot of worker strikes related to cost of living. I'm old enough to remember that. Mm-hmm. What I think is going to be different this time around, robotics. That is uh, where I predict now that a lot of companies that uh, when their workers show up and demand pay raises and uh, to keep up with the inflation and the cost of living, I think a lot of companies are going to look at, you know what, this robot here can basically do the same job as you're doing. It can do it 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Uh, it doesn't need to have a COVID-19 vaccination. It doesn't need to wear a mask. <laughs> you know? so, yeah. so my prediction. Never has of, a bad day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know if you ever watched the, uh, there was a series on HBO called The Wire, which you've never watched it. You ought to watch it. Libertarians, I'll watch it. You can get, you can get the DVDs on Netflix. Uh, season two was re- related to a, uh, a, uh, a, a union of people, of guys that unload ships. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I don't, it, it wouldn't be giving it away to say that at one point, uh, the union leader is at a big conference they're talking about in Amsterdam, how they have this, these robotic equipment that, that loads and unloads ships. Mm-hmm. And they bragged about the fact that they had cut worker injuries by 95%. And the union leader leans over to his buddy and he goes, if they don't have workers, they don't have worker injuries, do they? So that's uh, that's where I see this going. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So well, let's, let's wrap this up. Um, we've been going just over an hour. Um, let's wrap this up. So when it comes to... Give us a, a little synopsis of, of the boom bust cycle and then why it's so important to, to everybody and why they what we should be paying attention to and what we should be paying attention for. Well, they should, it's important to them because they're living in it. <laughs> it it's, it's happening now. And uh, I mean, we've shit. had this article. Yeah, well, I mean, you, you know, I mean, large purchases now, if you're going to buy a car, I, I drive by used car dealerships and I see used car dealerships empty. So, I mean, if you're going to buy a car, you better do it fast. Right. Uh, you're going to buy a new computer, you better do it fast because you're going to start seeing shortages. Right. And I, I'm, I'm old enough to remember in the 70s during the double digit inflation where they came out with government mandated that you can't raise prices. 
So suddenly we had shortages of everything. And then everything was quote unquote new and improved. That was the way they got around the mandate by saying everything was new and improved. That uh, also you buy a container, you're paying the same price for the container, but it's only half full. So you go buy Cheerios instead of a full box of Cheerios, basically you're paying the same price, but you only get like half a box of Cheerios. So I think we're going to be seeing that. And I think we're going to start seeing that soon. And I, I mean, I can tell you that my grocery bill pretty much has doubled over the past 14 months. I'm eating the same amount of food from the same grocery store. Yeah. But the, the seeds have already been planted. That's the main thing. The main take-home point I want to give is the seeds have already been planted, so you just best prepare for the bus to come. Yeah, yeah. Well, and that's why I wanted to get into, you know, uh, hedging uh, against it because – you know, we can sit here and bitch, moan, and groan and throw black pills around all day long. But, you know, if, 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 if nobody's offering any solutions, then we're not doing any good. And, you know, it's just, you know, it's like I said when I was on Pete's podcast the other day. This is what's happening. So now you need to, to make your adjustments accordingly and live your life accordingly to, to these facts on the ground. Now that you know the facts and where we're going, what we're looking at, then you know live accordingly you know make make the proper adjustments and well, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm 56 years old now and old men throughout uh, as far back as recorded history have been saying that the world's going to hell and uh so you know the world keep man just to keep spinning on his axis somehow <laughs> uh, you know, well it's I, because I, it's because it's not the world that's going to hell it's people <laughs> <laughs> I just think that we as Americans just need to accept the reality that, you know what, it's not June 1944 anymore. The rest of the world has uh, caught up to us and that we can't, uh, we don't, we're not the world's one and only economic superpower anymore. Yeah. And I, I think we need to face that reality. And, you know, look, we got 800 foreign military bases. I mean, the British Empire at its absolute height, even counting. Even counting Canada and Australia didn't have 800 foreign military bases. So, I mean, we can't, we can't continue to maintain, you know, this, this, this global economic empire that we've enjoyed since 1944. Right. Yeah. And, you know, empires have been pursued for as long as there have been nation states and none and of them last no for long. No coincidence that Afghanistan has been called the graveyard of empires for a couple of thousand years now. So, <laughs> hey, man, good for the posh tunes, man. You know, uh, good for them. Uh, I ain't mad at them. Oh, I'm not, but I, I do have to leave. But I, I recently had a conversation with one of my court appointed clients who was a uh, Afghan war veteran and. He, he said his officers told them specifically his exact words were don't let anybody mess with the poppy fields. Yeah. Yeah. I've, <laughs> I've heard, I've heard similar stories. Well, all right, Michael, I'm, I'm going to get off here. I got to get on the road. I'm, I'm trying to get home today. So I'm going to, I'm going to get rolling. Okay, enjoyed it. I did too, man. We'll talk again. All right. Buddy. Pick and choose, well, it's a game that was made for you to lose. It doesn't really matter how many times it's the same.
lines There are one dirty fingers in hypocrisy Bragging on their feet to mediocrity again Never really making any kind of change But they keep on getting re-elected and I find that strange Fuck them, don't feed them, cause we don't even need them I never celebrate the tyrants out of taking our freedoms Yeah, I said fuck them, don't feed them, cause we don't even need them I never celebrate the tyrants out of taking our freedoms What's it gonna take for you to see That we're living in a rigged democracy Don't even need them, I never celebrate the times out of taking our freedom.